few minutes, we'll be uh, in Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 15 this morning as we continue our study through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9, verses 6 through 15, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there this morning. C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is, to love and delight in the worthiest object of all and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme blessedness. To praise God fully, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drowned in, dissolved by that delight which, far from remaining pent up within ourselves as incommunicable bliss, flows out from us incessantly, Again, an effortless and perfect expression. Our joy is no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. Charles Spurgeon said, We don't sing enough, my brothers and sisters. How often do I stir you up about the matter of prayer, but perhaps... I might be just as earnest about the matter of praise. Do we sing as much as the birds do? Yet, what have birds to sing about compared with us? Do they think we sing as much as the angels do? Yet, they were never redeemed by the blood of Christ. One of the songs in our hymnal is the doxology. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Why all of this talk about praise? Well, I believe when we read the passage this morning, it will be clear that God is great and greatly to be praised. In fact, I believe that we will see that God is to be exalted for who he is, for his plan, for his power, and for his provision. So if you are able this morning, would you please stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. 
and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Let us bow for prayer. Father, thank you. Your word is faithful. It is true. May it penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. May we truly see in this passage of scripture, God, that you are a great God. And you are greatly to be praised. May your praise be on our lips forevermore for all that you've done for us. Thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning for your servants are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I had said that this section um, of Nehemiah is the longest prayer that's recorded in Scripture. And here we see this recounting of Israel as a nation. The prayer begins with uh, creation, and then it goes all the way through their captivity. And as we read this, I trust that you see over and over again, it was declaring how great God is. And that leads us to the first thing I want us to see from this passage of Scripture this morning, which is the proclamation of God's uniqueness. The proclamation of God's uniqueness. As we look at the very beginning of verse 6, we read, You are the Lord, you alone. So right at the start, the, the people are praising God for who he is. Notice the word Lord. That is the Hebrew word Yahweh. The idea is that God alone is God. In other words, God has no rivals. God has no equal. They were surrounded by competing religious allegiances. But this opening sentence is making it clear that they are committed to the one true God. Any other claimant to deity was simply a non-existent figment of corrupt human imagination. These are the covenant people of God, and they're making their uncompromising confession. You alone are the Lord. This saying was actually part of the prayer of devout Jews. It was known as the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Any other God was simply a fraudulent identity, and yet the attraction of idolatry was constant throughout Israel's history. God is self-existent. 
He is the eternal God, and there is no other like him. He is the only one. He is unique, and he has no rivals. Let me say that to declare God alone is God is a significant affirmation for our time because we are continuously faced with idolatry and pluralism. And I know that the idea, idea of idolatry is, is um, not popular today because we think of idolatry kind of as uh, little statues, right? And like we picture people putting up a little statue and bowing down to a statue or, or going to a large statue and bowing down to that. But idolatry is so much more than that. In fact, I would say that most of our idols that, that we struggle with are idols that, that today reign in our hearts. So what, what happens is people worship prosperity and popularity and pleasure and power. And those that idolize these invisible things frequently will turn their backs on God in pursuit of, of these things. Furthermore, we live in this pluralistic society. And many won't tolerate uncompromising biblical exclusivism. So what we end up with is this kind of pick-and-mix religion that regards all religions, both ancient religions and modern religions, as equal. And, and we hear the saying, well, the, well, they're all equal. They're all just worshiping the same God. And so we end up with this kind of New Age, bizarre idea which focuses on self. And so it's, it's, you just have to be more self-aware and self-fulfillment rather than on the reality of human sin and the crucial need of a Savior. However, Jesus made it clear in his earthly ministry what it takes to be saved when he said this, eternal life was knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. We must be ready to focus on the uniqueness of Christ. We must be prepared to bear what has been labeled the scandal of particularity and say that salvation is found in no one else but Christ. For there is no name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. And so we have this proclamation right at the beginning, this proclamation of God's uniqueness. But not only do we have this proclamation of God's uniqueness, then we see the power of God, the power of God. The hearts of the people are overflowing with this awareness of the, of the greatness of God and his grace. And the Israelites begin to praise God as the almighty creator of all Things. And the point is, is clear that God is the creator God. And as creator God, he is, is the power behind everything that exists. We know from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that word created in Genesis comes from the Hebrew word bara, which uh, it means to bring into existence or creates out of nothing. There's this Latin term that gets used, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. The picture is that God stepped out into nothing, and he just spoke. 
and nothing became something. That's the power of God. There is no one that can create something out of nothing except God. This is a testimony to God's power and his total sufficiency. God made everything out of nothing. In the latter part of verse 6, we have this part of creation that we really do not hear much about when it says that God preserves all things. He is not only the creator of all things, but but anything that lasts on this earth is preserved by God. Now, picture this for a moment. Not only did God create this entire universe, but the only reason that this universe remains in existence is because God is preserving it. That is what God's word says about Jesus. In Colossians 1 17 when it says and he is before all things and in him all things hold together Jesus holds everything together apart from Christ the whole universe would explode into pieces and be non-existent so contrary to the foolishness of the evolutionists the world did not explode into existence instead everything in existence is there first because God created it out of nothing and secondly because God preserves it in the first place what great comfort that should bring to you and I to to all Christians because our God who made everything out of nothing can do anything he so chooses to do. There is nothing that is beyond our God's ability. If you understand that this morning, there is nothing that's beyond our God's ability. The very God who can give life to all things will not leave his people without strength, peace, and hope. And so we see this power of God. And then we see the privilege of God. The privilege of God. What we have here in verses 7 and 8 is this recounting of how God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations. Abraham was was handpicked by God, and not because of Abraham's faithfulness, nor because of Abraham's belief, but solely because of God's love and grace to Abraham. Now let's look at this. First we notice his choosing. God in his sovereignty chose Abram and called him from Ur, Genesis chapter 12, we see that. God further made a covenant with him and to his seed in Genesis chapter 15. Now notice how how they point out that God, the Levites are pointing out that, that God gave him the name of Abraham. Back in the book of Genesis, we read in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, the name Abram means exalted father, and the name Abraham means father of 
of a multitude or of many nations. Now, here's the thing. Genesis chapter 17, which is what I just read to you when God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, occurs after Abram had bore a son with his wife's servant, Hagar, who was the son that was named Ishmael and not the child of promise. At this point in Genesis 17, Abram is 86 years old. 86. He still does not have a child of promise. God still has not made faithful on the promise. And then God changes his name from what means exalted father to the father of a multitude. He's 86. Wrap your mind around that. That 86 years old, God changes his name to remind him, to remind Abraham of his promise to make him the father of many nations. And then, as we know, God makes good on his promise. Please do not miss the significance and how the Levites arranged this passage for us theologically. They do not put the things in the order that we find them in Genesis. I don't know if you realize that or not, but they, but they put them in different order. They, they put it in the order that God chose Abram, then he gave him the name Abraham, then he found his heart faithful. So it goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis chapter 17, and then back to Genesis chapter 15. God chose frail little old Abraham, and, and a nation was born from him. God selects unlikely people from undistinguished places to fulfill his plans so that men and women can't boast in their achievements but have no choice but to glorify the God of heaven. And the Levites continue to recount history. And then we see his covenant. Verse 8, his covenant. At the beginning, there's this focus on the covenant. Abraham's made mistakes. He failed and he sinned, but God restored him and faithfully moved forward with him. Abraham is not known for his failure, but he's known for his faith. In the New Testament, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. God is gracious and that he forgives and he restores us. It should be encouraging to us that God found Abraham's heart faithful after a failure. Abraham's name change was covenant related. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And he made good on his promise even after Abraham's failure. That's wrap this this point up where we're talking about the privilege of God by seeing his completeness his completeness very simply look at the last part of verse 8 and you have kept your promise for you are righteous God not only promises but he also brought the promise to pass The realization of God's promises lies in the fact that God is righteous. In other words, God's promises are dependent on God. 
not on you. And he always keeps his promises because God is a promise-keeping God. Everything that God does in our lives is absolutely righteous. God can only keep his promises if he is sovereign over all things. We worship a sovereign God who keeps his promises to his people. Psalm 116.5 tells us, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. God's dealing with Abraham is an example of how God deals with us. God always does what he says. And the reliability of God's word and what we read in the word of God is guaranteed by the integrity of God's character. And so when we read promises in God's word, it's guaranteed by who God is. He is a God of truth. He is incapable of deception. We are secure when, like Abraham, we accept what God's word says, when we accept what we read in God's word as infallible fact. Moving on, we notice point number four, the preeminent love of God. The preeminent love of God. Now, we have a lot here because there's a lot to cover in these verses. This prayer leaps from Abraham, goes from Abraham to Moses. It moves from the creation of the nation to the salvation of the nation, from God's grace in establishing the community to his power in redeeming them. We see put on full display the preeminent love of God in his delivering the people from Egyptian bondage. They had grown uh, wealthy and powerful to the point that the Egyptians were fearful that they would outnumber them, and so they enslaved them and forced them to make bricks. And, and people are reminded of the love of God and his compassion for them and delivering them from slavery. We're again reminded that God chooses the most unlikely personality to achieve his plans. In this case, a refugee who had fled Egypt 40 years earlier because he is guilty of manslaughter. God has this incredible way of using the weakest people, especially those who are haunted by their own failures. First, we notice that they that the people were distressed slaves. They were distressed slaves. They were suffering the affliction under the heavy hand of Pharaoh when they began to cry out to God for help. Now notice it says that God saw their affliction, he heard their prayer, and he called Moses to lead the people out of the land of Egypt. God's love for his people saw the suffering and heard their cries. And it's an awesome thing that God sees our affliction. There's nothing that happens to you that God does not see. He sees your affliction, but not only that, God hears our cries. Love without power to do anything is absolutely helpless, and power without love is dangerous. However, God is both all-powerful and all-loving. He had determined their destiny. He saw their affliction. He heard their prayers, and he changed their life by his great power and love. So what did God do? Well, 
It tells us what he did, right? God displayed signs at the beginning of verse 10. We see that God showed signs and wonders. He put on display for Pharaoh and all the Egyptians to see just how powerful God is. This included the the 10 plagues that punished and crippled Egypt. First, we had the plague of blood, which is in Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Aaron, at the command of Moses, raised his staff over the Nile River. The water turns to blood, causing the fish to die and fill the land with an awful odor. And then we had the plague of frogs, Exodus 8, 1 through 15. Aaron raised his staff again over the streams and rivers, and frogs came forth and covered the land. Frogs were everywhere, even in their beds and in their kitchens. And then we had the plague of gnats, Exodus 8, 16 through 19. Aaron struck the dust with his staff, and all the dust turned to gnats. That's a lot of gnats. Then we have the plague of flies, Exodus 8, 20 through 32. God sent swarms of flies upon the land. The plague only affected the Egyptians. It did not touch the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. Then we have the plague of livestock dying, Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. God sent disease and pestilence upon the Egyptian cattle. They would lose all their cattle, including uh, their horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As a result of this plague, all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel, not one died. Then we have the plague of boils, Exodus 9, 8 through 12. In response to God's command, Aaron and Moses took handfuls of acids from a furnace, threw it into the air, and as a result, the people were infested with an awful pestilence of boils. These boils resulted in sores, infections, and great physical pain. Then we have the plague of hail, Exodus 9, 13 through 35. God sends a mighty storm of hail mingled with fire upon the land. This was something that had never been seen before. The storm destroyed people, crops, and cattle. And then we have the plague of locusts, Exodus 10, 1 through 20. It's a tragic scene. Pharaoh continues in his prideful stubbornness after all that God has shown him. He still would not let God's people go. At God's command, Moses lifted his rod over Egypt and brought on a strong east wind for a day. After the wind, a plague of locusts covered the land. They devoured what crops were left from the previous plagues. And then the plague of darkness, Exodus 10, 21 through 29. There's no ordinary darkness. It was some sort of deep, thick darkness that was like nothing they'd ever seen before, and it lasted three days. It describes the darkness as a darkness that could be felt in Exodus 10.21. And then we have the plague of the death of the firstborn, Exodus 11 through Exodus 12. The tenth of the final plagues. There's a plague of death upon the firstborn of all the people and animals of the land. God would pass over the land on a certain night and kill the firstborn. God, being merciful and gracious, made a way for them to avoid this judgment. If they would kill a sacrificial lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of the house, God would pass over them without taking their firstborn. Those who followed these instructions demonstrated their faith in God. Those who did not follow God's requirements suffered the consequences. Pharaoh's son died that night, as well as many children of the Egyptians. These mighty acts of God broke the stubbornness of Pharaoh. And he finally let the people of God go. Don't ever think that you will win a battle with God. 
because you won't. We can fight against God all we want, but we will never win. Look next at the depth of Egypt's sin. The depth of Egypt's sin. If you look at the middle of verse 10, we notice this line. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. The underlying problem of the Egyptians was their pride. Pride is the root of so much sin. The Egyptians were proud and arrogant. And I would expect that Pharaoh was the worst of all. In fact, listen to what he said in Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. What pride. A man who lifted his head high and stuck out his chest to challenge the Almighty God. And God has determined so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1.29 A man's pride shall bring him low. Proverbs 29.23 The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Proverbs 15.25 God detests pride. He detests it. And Pharaoh soon found out what the Lord thought of pride. And he would soon find out who this Lord really is. And he is brought to shame God is not impressed with human pride. Sure, we can impress our buddies and we can impress our friends with how prideful we may appear to be, but God is not impressed. In fact, everything that we find in Scripture shows God dealing against pride. God always wins. Always, always, always wins. Pharaoh had rejected the existence and the power of God. He refused to follow the commands that were given to him. And as a result, he and the people suffered greatly. Now next notice, the declaration of God's sovereignty. The last part of verse 10. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. By his mighty power, God delivers one judgment after another upon the land of Egypt until finally Pharaoh's stubbornness is broken. God's people are set free in his dealings with the Egyptians. God made a name for himself, which is still supreme to this day. Everything that God did in Egypt was a demonstration of his power and a sovereignty over all of his creation and was an exaltation of the name of God. The Egyptians did not know the true God. They had not heard of him. They were not even interested in the one true God. But it is for certain that after the judgment and the deliverance of his people that they knew who he was. When God announced his name to Moses at Horeb, he was declaring his character. When he said to Moses, I am 
who I am. He was declaring who he is, that he is the eternal, unchanging God, that he is the ever-present God, for he always has been and will always be the same. He is the never-failing God. He declared he is the God of your fathers. He is the all-powerful God. He declares that he has promised to bring them up out of misery. The redemption of his people was undeniable historical proof that he would do exactly as he said he would do. It's a declaration of his sovereignty. He has to be sovereign in order to do exactly as he says he will do. And then we notice the dividing of the sea. So Pharaoh lets the people go, right? But he had a change of heart. And what's he do? We know, if we've read the story, he goes after them with his army, and and he comes up. Uh, they come. The Israelites come up against the Red Sea. They can go no farther. The situation seems hopeless. However, Moses, obeying the Lord, stretched forth his staff over the water. The sea parts. The people of God cross on dry land. The enemies are destroyed. So let's notice the drowning of the soldiers and the armies of Egypt began to cross the Red Sea behind the Israelites, God lets go of the waters. The walls collapsed, drowning the Egyptians. Please notice God parted the sea. God cast the Egyptians into the water. And as God's people started anew, their enemies lie dead and destroyed in the Red Sea. The sea that opened to deliver God's people became the grave for the Egyptians. And here's the thing. All through history, this account in Exodus has been retold and appealed to in many different contexts. All through history, helpless slaves in the New World used to sing a song called Go Down Moses, in which they would say, Let my people go, referring to their slavery. Thousands of innocent people who suffered during the Holocaust crowd Uh, cried out for a similar deliverance. Contemporary and liberation black theologians interpret these narratives anew and plead for better things today. Over the centuries, those that have been held captive have turned to this account and they they turn to to what we read here of, of Moses as a sign of hope and that God would deliver his people, those who truly follow him. The days of oppression are not over though. And if we think they are, if we somehow think that the days of oppression are done and through, then we have turned a blind eye. We live in a cruelly divided world where millions long for change. In addition to political oppression, ethnic conflicts, and appalling racial injustice, there are tyrannies that are close and more subtle to us. Maybe you know the tyrannies I speak of. Perhaps you are even enslaved by one of them. You know things like destructive lifestyles, greed, gluttony, drug abuse, pride, alcoholism, sexual promiscuity, gambling, pornography, 
and in all of our strength. We cannot break free from these sins that master us. They, they have a grip on us, and in all of our, we try to muster up all the strength that we possibly can in order to break free from these sins that hold us into slavery. And we can. And this account of what God did for thousands of broken Hebrew slaves is a model of what continues, what he continues to do in changing human lives. Lives. It is no wonder that the early Christians would express the wonder of their salvation. It was in categories that reminded them of the Exodus. Through, through his redemptive plan and work, Christ became the deliverer. The Passover lamb was slain in their place. The judgment was passed, and they were now released pilgrims destined for a new land. Let me ask you this morning, is Christ your deliverer? Do you personally know him? Has he delivered you from the slavery of sin that you are faced with? Have you indeed been set free from the bondage of sin and put on a new path? Can you say that this morning? If you can't, I pray that today, would be the day of salvation for you that you would know Christ as your deliverer. Fifthly, let's see the presence of God. Verse 12, speaking of the presence of God with them, they had a pillar of cloud that led them by day and a pillar of fire by night to light the way for them, showing them which way to go. For 40 years, they had God's leadership and protection as they wandered in the wilderness due to their own sin, of course. But God's people were in dire straits as they had failed to be obedient and, and take the promised land as they were called to do. And they had no clue which, which way they were going to go and, and what they were going to do. But, but God still led them. The steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way, Psalm 37, 23 tells us. Now, there are two significant verbs here in, in verse 12 as we look at it. The first one is, is the word, uh, the verb led. That is speaking of being guided, and the emphasis is on the fact that God guided them in the direction that they needed to go. And the second is uh, to light. This helped the people know the path that they were to follow. Now, here's the thing. As we, as we look at them being led and guided, and we look at the light to, to reveal to them where they are to go, Jesus is both of these. Jesus guides in the direction we need to go. Through the Holy Spirit, he is our guide. He said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he himself said that he was the light of the world. He lights our way through his word, letting us know the path to take. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus replaces the, 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 the cloud and the fire. He is both of them. He is our guide if we know him, just like the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night is he 
your guide today? Is he guiding you? Is he leading you? Is he revealing to you the way that you are to go? Sixthly, let's notice the precepts of God, verse 13 and 14. We see these precepts. They're recounting how God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, the very law that they were listening to had been given to the Israelites by God himself. For me, and I am sure it is for you as well, it's exciting to study these scriptures and to know with confidence that what we are reading is literally God's word. What we have is this this comparison um, in these verses with with a pagan God and the true and living God. You see, the pagan gods were dead and silent, but the living God came down and spoke with his people at Sinai. He told them that, that he would be with them. How could you possibly have God at your side and be destitute? The answer is, you can't be. And so the same question can be asked of us, right? How can we possibly walk around in our life as a, a like we are destitute when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God was true to his word then, and God is true to his word now. God lavished his choice gifts on them and met their needs, and we see this in our very last point this morning, when we see the provision of God. The provision of God. God made moral provision for them, He gave them just and right laws and decrees and commands which are good. He provided for them physically, verse 14, by giving them a holy Sabbath. He provided for them materially, verse 15, by giving them bread from heaven and water from a rock. He had also provided for their spiritual needs. Everything he had said and done was for their blessing. He had taken a solemn vow with an uplifted hand to give them the land, And he would not go back on his word. When God spoke to them, they could trust in his promises because his promises are a reflection of his character. Verse 8, they knew God was righteous because it was evident in his just and right laws. Verse 13, they knew that God was good because it was demonstrated in his good decrees. Verse 13, they knew that God was thoughtful because he was He has demonstrated by him making a day of rest. Verse 14, they knew that God was generous because it was demonstrated by him giving them bread when they were hungry and water when they were thirsty. Verse 15, they knew that God was dependable because he had sworn to give to them in verse 15. Let me ask you this morning. Were they worthy to receive anything from the good hand of God? Were they worthy to receive any of this? If so, what made them worthy to receive it? They weren't worthy. Nothing made them worthy. You see the parallel? They weren't worthy, and neither are we. We don't deserve salvation. We don't earn it because we can't. 
There's nothing you can do to get it. That's why it's grace. And in the same way that God dealt graciously with the Israelites, God deals graciously with us. We don't deserve salvation. There is nothing in us that makes us better than anyone else. Nothing. Not where you're born, not what you have, not who your parents are. There is nothing that makes you better than anyone else but by God's grace alone. He saves us. Grace alone. That is the whole picture of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead in the tomb. He had been dead so long that his sister basically says, Lord, he stinks. And Jesus calls out and says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus does not say, let me think about this, Lord. Let me debate with you, Lord. Or Lord, let me have an exercise of my own volition or my own free will. Why? Because Lazarus is dead. He's dead. He's not partially dead. He's not halfway dead. Lazarus is dead, dead. And the grace of God shows up and overcomes Lazarus's deadness. We don't read, oh, Lord, let me just make sure I have enough faith to come out of this grave. Why? Because both faith and grace are gifts from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one can boast. What happens when Lazarus comes out of the tomb? What does Jesus say? Well, before the fact, he says, I do this. So that you will believe and see the glory of God. In other words, I did this so that you would believe. Believe what? Believe that God has a power to raise the dead. The picture is clear. You and I are spiritually dead. We're dead. We're dead people. And we are only brought to life through the power of God that breathes life into us. Dead men and women can do absolutely nothing. Now listen, church. Praise God. Praise God be to God for who he is. We should want to praise God. We should sing his praises. His praise should always be on our mind. He has proclaimed his uniqueness and so we should praise him. He has revealed his power to us so we should praise him. We have been recipients of the privilege of God by his choosing and making a covenant with us and that covenant was completed by the blood of his son so we should praise him praise him for his great love for us we were slaves to sin and we are no longer slaves anymore so we should 
praise Him. But God in His sovereignty has broken the bondage of sin in our lives and He is present with us here this morning. And as Christ declared, He would be with us always and we praise Him for everything that He has done for us. By His grace. Because we don't deserve it. Oh, church, praise God. We should love, we should love to sing praise. We should love it. We should, well, why are we singing Christmas music? It's a week after Christmas. It shouldn't matter. Praise God. We should come in here just ready to praise God for everything he has done because God is great and greatly to be praised. His praise should always be on our lips and ever present in our heart. We should sing praise to him. We should shout praise to him. We should want to praise God every single time that we think of him. And I simply ask you, is that you today? God is great and greatly to be praised. Are you praising him today? Do you understand that? Is that the cry of your heart and what's on your lips? Oh God, I praise you for everything that you've done for me. And if not, why not? Could it be because you don't know him? He can set you free from that sin that you're being held in bondage by today. Because you can't break free on your own. Because you're dead. And he can breathe new life into you. Let's close a prayer.